0: you've seen the warnings don't drive through flood waters evacuate when officials tell you during hurricanes or wildfires tornadoes can strike any town even if your town has never been hit and heat is the biggest weather killer these are some of the messages meteorologists put out there in extreme weather events today on weather geeks we delve into why these extreme weather warnings can go ignored and find out what we can do about it when Helen Roberts from the UK Met Office discusses this topic with us today Helen thank you for joining us on the weather geeks podcast
1: It's an absolute pleasure to be with you today I'm so excited to get get chatting
0: Yes this is really a you know it's always uh, exciting when we have an international guest on on the show uh, we try to be international in our focus and I have to start the podcast with the question that I ask every single Weather Geek guest. How did you become a Weather Geek?
1: Well, great question. Um, I most definitely am a Weather Geek for sure. Um, And I think it started quite young. I remember um, being... Just really excited by particularly thunderstorms as a child. I'm sure that's a really common answer when you ask that question to people. We don't have um, as severe weather in the UK as you do in the states. So, so just a simple thunderstorm with a good rumble and and some flashing lightning is um is about as good as it, good as it gets here often. So uh, yes, I, I know that my parents would would have messages from the neighbours saying that your daughter's up well past bedtime looking out of her bedroom window at night did you realize so i think it was that that started things i remember the the big storm of 1987 um i was seven years old walking to school after the storm had gone through overnight and seeing all the debris um and just being absolutely fascinated by it
0: Yeah, that's a story we often hear, but I think you have a really unique twist on on things. And let me give you a bit of Helen Roberts' background so that you all as listeners know a little bit about her. She's currently a socio-meteorologist focusing on weather and climate extremes and impacts with the Met Office in the UK. And I can't wait to dig into more on what a socio-meteorologist is. Uh, She had a nearly four year break from the Met Office to work as a weather presenter for the BBC. Uh, She has a master's in psychology from the Open University in Buckinghamshire and a bachelor's in environmental geosciences from the University of Wales in Cardiff. So, really interesting background and really excited to talk with you. Right out of the gate, I have to ask you, and I'm sure many of our listeners are wondering the same thing, what is a socio-meteorologist?
1: Yeah, so this is a a job title that I guess I came up with a few years ago, and at that point it was um, it was an idea, it was a concept, it was something that I thought would be super cool if we could get a socio-meteorologist at the Met Office. Um, and little did I know that two years later there I would be um, doing this amazing job that I absolutely love. And, and really how I try and explain it to people is it's working at the intersection of the social sciences and the the natural and physical sciences and i think historically in the meteorological community and particularly in the met office we've been you know we've we've got so many expertise in our organisation and more broadly and many of them are in the physical sciences the natural sciences environmental sciences and and in fact more recently data science but social science the social sciences have been somewhat neglected or at least um put on the back burner and although there has been some fantastic work done across the met office and and more broadly um in in the social science space it's often been done in quite a an ad hoc way not necessarily even labeled as social science and so i think one of one of the things that i really wanted to achieve first and foremost in this role was to um was to really bring that work together and to recognise it for what it is and to really champion the importance of the social and behavioural sciences. And one of the ways in which I did that was to set up a social science community of practice in the organisation, open to anyone who has an interest, a passion um, for using the social sciences in their their workspace. And it was a huge success, Um, still is. We have regular guest speakers, um, presentations and discussion sessions, and it's just a place that, where like-minded people can get together to discuss the huge variety of work that's going on.
0: Really exciting. I, I, I realize that I know what the UK Met Office is, and you know what the UK Met Office mm-hmm. is, but many of our listeners, particularly US-based, may not have a feel for what, what the UK Met Office is. So, Could you give us a brief 101 on what the UK Met Office is?
1: Of course. So, we're the National Weather Service in the UK. So, we are a what we call an arm's length body of the UK government, which means that we um, we are affiliated with the government. We uh, have much of our funding comes from government and therefore UK taxpayers. Um, and we have to be very, very mindful and careful with, with those finances that we receive. In order to ensure that we're providing benefits to to the UK, um, and and we turn that socio economic benefit, and that's really important. And then we do also have a commercial wing of the organisation, so we bring in our own money, and some of that is paid back to the government in dividends, and some of it we we. Um, we, you know put into to future research and development and science and, and technology and all, all the rest of, of what goes on in the Met Office and it's also important to say that although most people probably think of us in terms of our weather expertise um, our climate science is is actually world-leading we have the Hadley Centre embedded within the Met Office which which is a, a global climate research centre that we're really proud of as well
0: yeah, I would say for those, that it's a really uh, nice hybrid between our National Weather Service and NOAA here at the U- United yeah. States with a bit more focus on weather and climate than say NOAA, which has a much a broader mission. You know, I want to dive right in. Uh, a big topic that we wanted to discuss with you today is this concept of belief bias. And even here in the U.S., we've seen aspects of it recently with things like Hurricane Ian, Houston's tornadoes that recently happened and the St. Louis flooding. So define for our listeners what belief bias is and how it's applied in the context of weather.
1: Yeah, so so biases in general are a, an absolutely fascinating topic. And if anyone hasn't seen Dr. Shepherd's TED Talk on, on the topic, I highly recommend it. It's really, really great. Um, Thank you. And, and <laughs> what I would say about cognitive biases in general is that They are not a problem in and of themselves. Actually, we can use them to our advantage, but what we need to do first and foremost is to understand what biases are, how they impact people's decision making, um, and therefore tailor our messaging to account for those biases. and there are—I've actually got a list here of 106 cognitive biases in front of me, and I'm sure there are more. I'm sure that isn't exhaustive, but if you go through them, it's really interesting how you can pick out so many of them that have relevance for for meteorologists and for communicating um, uncertainty, probabilistic information. In the most effective way, so so perhaps it might be useful just to to pick out a few of those that yeah, are. Well, I, I th- here. Yeah, I want to
0: go. Yeah, I want to go through. A, let's take one quick break, and then when we come back from the break, I want to go through a list that I've identified, and perhaps there may be more that you want to share too. So we'll come back after the break, and we'll find out what some of these biases are. Have you heard? You can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm speaking with Helen Roberts, a socio meteorologist with the UK Met Office. And we just opened up the discussion about belief biases and goodness gracious in the world of both weather communication risk and climate. You see many of these biases all of the time. I want to start with Hicks law. What is that?
1: Hicks law, this is a really interesting one. So, this is um, research that shows that that more options lead to harder decisions. And so, this means that um, when we're producing advisory action statements, when there's severe weather, that we really have to be um, mindful of making them clear and easy, ideally free or at least cheap, and making sure that there are few of them, so we don't want to overload or overwhelm people with too much information.
0: Yeah, that's certainly one that's relatively common in the world of weather and climate. I think this is one that some people may be familiar with, and it's certainly the uh, one that I speak about in that TED talk that you mentioned, confirmation bias.
1: Mm, Yes, there's lots of examples of this, and actually you mentioned one in your introduction at the start of the show whereby there can be an assumption that if something has has never impacted me then it 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 may not there's no risk to me and you were talking about if tornadoes have never affected my particular town then perhaps you you see that as always being the case and and it's really about holding on to evidence that backs up your your thoughts your assumptions and this is also true in the context of climate change and and we all know that there are people who are really reluctant to to jump on board with the climate change message. And so it's often the case that those people will cling on to evidence. And I'm using (laughs) air quotes here that supports their their beliefs.
0: Yes, that's one that we see quite often in in the climate change discourse and particularly on social media. Now, this is one that I actually was not as familiar with or perhaps I am, but just not by name. Banner bias? Yes,
1: yeah, so so this one, I, I must admit I didn't know it by this name either, but it's it's the effect whereby people tune out to things they're repeatedly exposed to. And this really is all about for us the danger of overwarning. In the UK National Severe Weather Warning Service, um, we have three levels of warning for eight weather parameters. And the levels are fairly um, intuitive in that it's a colour system, a traffic light system. So we have red, um, uh, yellow, amber and red, red being the the highest level of warning that we issue. Um, But inevitably, there are uh, lots of yellow warnings issued during the course of the year. Many, many fewer ambers and very, very few reds. We really do hold the red warnings back for extremely hazardous and impactful weather scenarios, which is great. That's exactly how it should be. But there's there's an ongoing debate, I think, with the yellow warnings, whether there are too many of them, whether people do tune out or um, ignore them. And it's something I really think that that we should research a little bit more closely.
0: Now, I, I know just speaking of that in the UK, there were extreme temperatures in the summer of 2022. I mean, I, I think I recall temperatures on the order of at least we speak in Fahrenheit here in the US of 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, first of all, did you think you'd ever see these types of temperatures in your lifetime? Uh, we know that heat is a, can be a number one or near the top in terms of weather killers. Um, is, it, is it hard given, given that sort of non sort of dramatic nature of heat compared to a hurricane or a storm to convey messaging about heat and uh, particularly with some of these biases that may be in, in mind in terms of how you warn for something like that event in 2022? What were your experiences?
1: It's, it's so hard to warn for, for heat um, and, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit more more about that as we go through. But in answer to your first question. No, I absolutely didn't think that I would see this in my lifetime. Um, it was a it was a huge shock and surprise, and it was it was a fascinating event um, to to watch play out. I remember the first uh, member of the GFS ensemble highlighting the exceedance of forty degrees Celsius about fifteen days ahead of of it actually happening. And at that point, I think so many of us in the in the met community were um, thinking, or oh, this is you know this is this crazy. This is an outlier. This obviously isn't going to happen." You know, we were almost disregarding it um, as an error in a way. And then as as the days progressed and more and more global uh, models were were showing similar scenarios. Um, and just watching that play out in real time was absolutely fascinating. And as as more and more models were showing this exceedance of forty Celsius, uh, so we we had to take more and more notice until it started showing up in our high resolution UK model a few days before the event and. At that point i think we all realized okay this this really is going to happen um and so given that it is going to happen what do we do about it how do we effectively communicate the risks and exactly like you say um one of the challenges with communicating heat risk is that it's so much less tangible than other weather uh, events like for example a, a windstorm where you can see trees being blown down um, or flooding where you, you can visually see the, the effects and the impacts. Heat is, is in some ways, it affects everybody, um, but in other ways, it's just really difficult to pin down and it did present a challenge for communication. Particularly, actually, we noticed, um, and we've been noticing this um, over the last few years or so, that in the run-up to, to a heat events, we and other organisations like the UK hse who are responsible for public health are trying to communicate the risks. Um much of our media and, and certainly not all of our media but but um the usual culprits were portraying it as a, a positive event, uh something to, to have fun and enjoy it's frolicking and,
0: around in fountains and, exactly. and ice cream, which drives me crazy.
1: Exactly. Those sorts of images and pictures being used on the front pages of newspapers, just really encouraging the exact opposite of the behavior that that would have been appropriate.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you were saying about not really believing the models at first when it said 40 degrees C and i think that's even a bias we have to deal with as meteorologists and our i mean i think the models these days are showing things that we have a t- tough time believing are going to happen i mean we with hurricane harvey here in the states the models were indicating that significant level of rainfall, but many of us just didn't think that was going, I mean, initially, just, that's just kind of, that's out of out of the pocket. So as we're talking about biases, I think there are these little subtle biases that we struggle with because we're so used to the model performance and so forth, but with this new generation of new normal weather that we're dealing with, the models are picking up on it. Kudos to the models and to the UK Met Office, the European model, GFS and others, they're picking up on these things. And so we as meteorologists have to adjust our minds. So it's really interesting. Now, two Absolutely. more. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're you're completely right to say that. Of course, um, we're all human beings. We all have our own biases. Meteor- meteorologists certainly not excluded from that. It's actually something I'm really keen to do a little bit more work on over the next few few months and years. Is to not only understand better the decision making processes of of our customers and users, but also internally focus looking at our our meteorologists and how we can make those decision decisions, decisions um, easier and, and more efficient and effective.
0: Now, the two other terms that I want to throw out there for you, the spark effect and social proof.
1: Absolutely. So, um, the spark effect, this is where people are more likely to take action when the effort is small. And I briefly covered this when we talked about Hicks law. Um, But this is all about making sure that the action statements that we're suggesting, particularly again in times of severe and impactful weather, are not too onerous and certainly if there are a list of actions that we're suggesting that we should present the the easiest um, and cheapest actions first. The danger of doing the opposite and having um, a list of actions where the first one is potentially difficult or costly is that people will not only ignore that action statement but that they'll Potentially ignore all of them. So you really want to list from easiest through to hardest. I'll give an example. If, for example, um, uh, there's a, a powerful windstorm coming through, a, a named storm, because it, you're probably aware that in the last sort of seven, eight years or so, we've started to name our um, impactful areas of low pressure in a similar way to, to you naming hurricanes. It's been an exceptionally effective communication tool actually for us. Um, so, if we had a named storm in the forecast and there's potential for power outages, we might have a few suggestions um, to make sure you have a, uh, a, a, a torch to hand or candles and, and, and matches should the, the power go out, those two things are fairly easy and most people have them in their house, so they can do that without any cost. Um, and then you might also suggest that people have a, a battery backup charger for their mobile phone. Um, that might be more difficult. It might be hidden away in an attic, or it might require that someone goes to the shop mm-hmm. and purchase one. So just just the order in which you list them can make a huge impact.
0: And then there was the social proof.
1: So social proof is where people adapt their behaviors based on what others do. So um, this is a very, very common one. And there are some really great examples of this outside of meteorology. But if, for example, there's an evacuation order, people will base a lot of their decision on what they see others doing around them, friends, neighbors, family, relatives, um, and, and it's a really important bias for us to bear in mind. And there's a, a really great example I've come across that is outside of the world of weather, but interesting nonetheless, which is um, there I think there's a um, people don't quite realize how common electric cars are becoming. And because they don't necessarily see them visually looking any different than the non-electric cars on the road. So, they don't realize how many of them are already out there. And that will bias people towards perhaps not purchasing one or not even considering purchasing one themselves. And a simple way around that has been the use of a green stripe on the number plates of electric vehicles. Um, Once you know that, you you see them all over the place. I've I've been so surprised to see how many there are already on the road. So, it's just this... This um, we're, we're such social creatures, and we we really like. There there are those few sort of um, progressive people who are happy to be the first to try things out, but the vast majority of us like to see a few others try it before we do.
0: Don't like to be early adopters. I actually do drive an electric vehicle here, and here in the state of Georgia, there is a tad license tag that has a little green leaf on it, which does this,
1: green leaf. Interesting. Yes, yeah. the
0: same same concept. You know, many people in weather. Uh, uh, we sort of lament when we see people drive through a flooded roadway or you know exert themselves in extreme heat when there are warnings out there there are things like turn around don 't drown or if you the thunder roars goes in, go indoors for example. What is the psychology of why people continue to do things when they know that they shouldn't they 'll go out and play golf, have a metal stick in their hand, even though it 's lightning, but people will do it anyway what 's the psychology driving that?
1: I think there are a few things going on there but one of them for sure is just this this uh perception that it won't happen to me um that it's the sort of thing that happens to other people and we we do tend to have very skewed perceptions of risk um this is a big challenge for us in in weather and communicating uncertainties um and I, I heard an example the other day, and it, it's a little bit morbid, but I'm, I'm going to use it because it stuck with me. If you said to someone, "There's a fifteen percent chance of rain today," um, they might think, "Oh, well, that that's not very much. It probably won't rain. I, I'll leave my coat and my umbrella at home." If you told them there's a fifteen percent risk of the, a family member dying today, they're going to have likely have a very very different reaction and consider that to be. A significant factor in in their thought processes. So it's really so dependent on the context, um, and I'm sure you and so many of of your listeners will have come across that scenario where you hear people say, um, uh, "Oh." D- 10, 10% chance of rain, it's it's definitely not going to rain. And then it does, and uh, they say the forecast is wrong. Well, yes. <laughs> of course, we know it's not wrong. There was a 10% chance, and it did. And it wasn't 10, 0%. It wasn't zero, and of 10 days like that, one of them, there will be rain. But it's just really difficult for, for people to fully understand um, probabilities. And that, again, includes... As meteorologists, as, as well as the, the wider public. VR training
0: platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
1: As you write your life story, you're far from finished. slash podcast.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Helen Roberts from the UK Met Office. Fascinating, just fascinating conversation. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so glad we were able to have you on the podcast because this is a topic that we've wanted to deal with uh, going, going forward. And I think that you are putting on the, t- on the table several things that perhaps many of our our listeners have thought about even exhibited themselves or seen others do but now they can kind of put a psychological or cognitive term to what they they've observed now i want to get your thoughts because you're working in the uk men office you're on the front line of warning and risk communication to customers to consumers to the public Um, if you were to sort of wave a magic wand and sort of change some things to, that that you know we are doing right now about colors, how we communicate, the wording that we use, so forth and so on. Uh, is there something that you would wave your magic wand and change right now?
1: That's a fantastic question, and I think there are a, a few a few things that I would do um, if I if I could quite quickly, um, and some of them actually we we can do. Some of them are really they're low-hanging fruit, they're easy wins, and I, th- I think we, we can do these quite rapidly. Other things inevitably are going to take a little bit longer and a little bit more effort. But but some of those easy wins um, are in terms of those action statements that I've spoken about a few times, particularly in the context of, of weather warnings. and The way in which we word and frame and visualize those those action statements. And I'll I'll give you a few examples. So, um, if we're suggesting that because of particular hazard, that people don't drive unless necessary, um, how you can make that better is by explaining not only the what, but the why. So, adding the why to the action statement. So, an example here, Using public transport during a heatwave puts you at risk of being stuck on a hot, broken down train. So, then you're really giving people a visual image of what could happen and why they shouldn't be traveling. And and this leads me on actually to, to a similar but slightly slightly different factor, which is this positive versus negative framing of the message. So, again, we can go to the example of um, we might suggest people don't travel to work. But if you turn that round and frame it from a positive standpoint, change that to work from home if you can, that's a much better way of of trying to get people to to listen to the advice.
0: Really interesting. It's just about framing the message. And so I think that's something here in the US, we're also learning that, you know, we have the great models, we have the great radar and satellite can produce pretty good weather forecasts, but we need to think more strategically about the sort of end part of the forecast, because if they didn't understand it, get it or consume it properly, was it a good, good forecast at all? And so I hear hear you saying that as well. And I wanna pivot a bit to climate change, because you mentioned it earlier, we know it's a problem, we know it's affecting our weather, extreme weather, Sea level rise, economy, agriculture—all kinds of facets of life that people don't necessarily connect the dots. Uh, what are the challenges in communicating climate change solutions and potential weather impacts from your perspective?
1: Uh, there, there, there are many. Um, one of the first ones that springs to mind is, again, it's around the framing of the message and. The, the fact that um, it's very often preferable to have an emotional context around a message so if we're thinking about climate change one of the emotions that we can associate with with this is fear it's it's a big scary topic it has some potentially absolutely catastrophic catastrophic and devastating um, results, impacts if we don't do something about it. So there is the potential there that we we have to tread this line, this fine line very carefully between evoking enough of a fear reaction that people are motivated to do something about it, but not not scaring people so much that um, it can potentially cause a, a sort of paralysis and this feeling that okay well if we're all doomed then then what's the point so it's it's this this emotional gray area of of really trying to understand what what sort of emotions we should if people people in order to get the best reactions and i guess to some extent that that will be different across different different people, different populations, um, depending on their experience and their context, but it's certainly something that I think we, we need to bear in mind. But actually flipping that round on its head, I know that there is a lot of research and evidence to suggest that people learn best in a, in a culture that is fun and positive and engaging um and where people are happy. So this th- this is often used um for teachers and, and in school environments. And I'm sure we'd we all agree that um we take in much more information if we're enjoying things and there's a bit of humour in there as opposed to a very dry, boring seminar. Um, so we can try and use this to our advantage. There's there's a guy um I'm gonna forget his name now, I'll dig it out before we before we wrap up, who in the UK is combining his two great passions of uh climate science and stand-up comedy. And he has a, a stand-up routine, he also has a fantastic TED Talk, um where he's really engaging people who might not normally be the typical audience for a science heavy climate change lecture. Um, But we'll we'll take on board some of the key points that he's trying to get across via a different method of communication. And I love that. I love using alternative ways of communicating.
0: Now, I want to use Weather Geek's host privilege here to really geek out. Uh, At the end of last year, you posted on social media celebrating the 250th birthday of Luke Howard. (laughs) Now, Many of you listening to this podcast right now might know who that is, but I bet many of you don't, but he's considered widely as the father of meteorology and the namer of clouds. And I don't think we talk about him enough. Uh, tell the weather geeks listeners why you posted that.
1: This was a fantastic weekend that um I had just before Christmas. Uh, I was invited to Tottenham, which is a region of London. To visit um, the, the area that he spent a lot of his life, uh, and, and a park that we know that he would have visited regularly, in order to um, go to the the highest point in the in that particular part of London, and gaze up at the clouds. Like you say, he was the namer of the, of clouds. He was the person who came up with the, the system and convention that we all still use today, which is phenomenal when you think that it is 250 years old. So yes, it's been adapted and modified somewhat, but we still use the Stratus, the Cumulus, the Cirrus, those Latin names that he gave that, to the cloud classification system all those years ago. Um, and it was wonderful to feel that I was I was part of following in his footsteps, and actually his I believe it was his great great grandson was was there um, for this unveiling of a clouds appreciation park in Tottenham in in his memory. Um, and, uh, yeah, and a great group of people just with a passion for for looking up at the sky, and I think even as meteorologists we can sometimes forget to look up. Um, look outside the window, look up when we, when we head outside and really appreciate the, the vistas that are all around us.
0: Really fascinating, yes. And even some of the work that I've done, my own research in urban climate, Luke Howard mm. is a significant figure in some of the urban meteorology early work that was done. So I'm, I'm very aware of his work and I, I really appreciate that you acknowledge that. That's that's a, We love that as weather geeks. Now I want to draw this pod podcast to a close, with your learn about the weather course. I'm I'm aware of that through our producers. And I'm wondering if this is this something our weather geeks listeners can access?
1: Yes, it is. Um, So thank you for asking about this. It's um, hosted on a platform called future learn. And it's called learn about weather. And this was a course I developed quite a few years ago. Now, actually, the purpose was, um, or the remit, I guess, was to develop a uh, introduction to weather for for the general public, so for people who, who don't have um, a, a science or maths background and to try and make it really accessible so that people who have a little bit of a, an interest in understanding some of the terminology that's used on, on the television or on the radio um, or, or who likes looking at a, a synoptic chart but doesn't quite understand what, what the different um, uh, weather fronts and, and ice bars mean and it was just a re- really nice quick background um, to, to help people get up to speed with that so um, i believe you can access it at any time although we do also run it at specific points during the year with um, moderators who are able to answer questions in real time but if you're happy to do it on your own and just go through at your own pace then then you can have a look at that um, and, and I guess probably most of our listeners wouldn't really need it, but if you have friends and family who are interested in learning a bit more about about your job and, and your passion for weather, then then do point them in that direction.
0: Really great resource, thank you for sharing. Is, is, can we, where are your social media sites? Where can people find you if they wanna follow you?
1: So I'm at WeatherHelen on Twitter um, and I'm also on, on uh, LinkedIn as well. Helen Roberts on LinkedIn. Um, And I I really do appreciate hearing from people who have any thoughts, ideas, work in this field, particularly at the intersection of social and behavioural science and meteorology. So um, do, do feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you.
0: Well, this is where we have to end it. Really amazing conversation, Helen. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Now, before we go, it's that time of the podcast where we recognize our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Matthew Seedorf. Matt is an Emmy Award winning reporter for Fox 27 Houston. He has a passion for hurricanes and being in the outdoors, and hot. And I'm I'm guessing hopefully not both of those at the same time. One of his viewers nominated nominated him as the Geek of the Week, so thank you for nominating Matt for this award. And hopefully you'll let him know that he's being featured on this episode, so thank you for sharing your geekiness with others, Matt. Uh, Helen, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Shepherd, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure
0: and we will end it there. Continue. We've got some really great episodes like this one coming up throughout the year. So continue to listen to us and thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia and we'll see you next time.